0: um so it's interesting because that's really what we're going to see here in second peter and let me just remind you that the theme of what we're dealing with we have a series and it's the entire book of second peter is going to have this theme of spiritual growth and maturity and so we've taken some time already and we're going to be jumping in at verse 15 of chapter one today but so far we've seen specific steps of how the lord raises his children and really the key, the backbone to it all were in verses 5, 6, and 7, where we saw seven specific things that were to be added to your faith, and these represent seven steps of spiritual growth and maturity. And we've talked about how this is, this is an entire eight-week class that we teach in our ministry tools and training uh, section. In fact, we just the class just finished this and, and took their test on that, and, and, and you, did, you did great, by the way, those of you that were in there. Uh, no, no worries. Um, But this theme of spiritual growth and maturity, as we have come through and begun to look at these things, uh, one of the things that I want to remind us is is that it's particularly applicable to every single one of us. Uh, It doesn't matter how far you've come on the process. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner walking with the Lord, and you're new and just beginning to learn the elementary things. Or it doesn't matter if you've been saved for a very long time, and you've grown very much, and you understand very much, because there's always more. There's always another step. There's always something else that the Lord has for you. So this series is going to be helpful to each and every one of us. And and I would say that it's particularly applicable to all of us today because of the time in which we live and the day and the time and the age that the Bible defines as the church of Laodicea. And many of you know what I'm talking about when I say that. It comes out of Revelation chapter 3. But the last age, the last era of the church age, the time since the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ until the rapture of the church is is described for us by the church in Laodicea, which really has a lot of selfish attitudes going on, that they think of themselves as rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing, but they don't even realize God's opinion frequently is going to be, well, you're poor and miserable and blind and wretched and naked and, man, you... You need some help, spiritually speaking, and this is kind of the age and the day in which we live. It's the last days before the ultimate rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's characterized by many people falling away. Man, this is as good of a time as ever to recharge and to look at what the Bible says about how to continue to grow while the trend for many people is to, hey, you know, I've done my work. I'm just going to take it easy. And maybe not do that anymore. And so what I want us to see, and let me just get a running start because I I finished the last time I taught up through verse 14. Let me read verses 12 through 14 where Peter reminds them of some things and he wants to keep reminding them of some things. And and this is how we're going to get started today in verse 15. It says, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things that he was describing about spiritual growth and maturity though you know them and be established in the present truth. So it doesn't matter if you've already heard these things before. It doesn't matter if you've even been established in them before. I want to keep reminding you, Peter says, yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, in other words, this physical body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. So Peter knows, the Lord has shown him, that his physical life, is growing to the end. There's not much time left for him on planet Earth. And so the one thing he wants to do is to make sure that he has his disciples remember the key things, the important things that he wants to leave them with. It's not a time to teach them new things. It's a time for them not to forget the key things. And so rolling into verse 15 for today, moreover, he says, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. And so what we're really seeing here is Peter's last wishes for his followers to never forget, to always have some things in their remembrance. And so in a sense, right, that applies to all of us because we also are in the downline of Peter, We are his disciples, we are his students at some level, right? We are studying his letter, and we are learning from his teaching. So again, this is very applicable to all of us, and specifically what we're getting into today. And I would also say that Peter's endeavor to make sure that we could always remember these things was successful, wasn't it? Because here we have a record of what he wanted us to say, and we're sitting here some 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about it, we're still studying it. So God has come through, certainly, on this desire as he inspired Peter to put these things down. So what we have in front of us or we could, is, is the ability to see how he did it, or maybe more importantly, how we can make sure that we always remember the important stuff. And so that's the title I put in. I couldn't think of a better title, so I said, we, we need to remember how to, how to remember the important stuff. Look, we all forget some stuff, Right? But you want to remember the important stuff. And so today is going to be that day. We have a very rich passage of Scripture here. We're going to go through to the end of the chapter. And so there's a lot of things to see. Uh, It's got a lot of treasured, timeless truth. Um, Are you ready to get to work? We're going to do some Bible study. Y'all ready? All right, let me read. We'll start in verse 15 again. We'll go through the end of the chapter. We'll pray and we'll jump into it. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There's a lot in this passage, y'all, so let's ask the Lord to be our guide. Let's pray. Heavenly fathers, we come before you. Our desire is that you indeed will be the teacher, that your Holy Spirit will fill our hearts and, and guide our minds, that your word will speak the truth specifically into each and every one of our hearts. Everybody here, Lord, is at some different place in their life and in their journey and their desire to walk with you. And some are are just beginning and some have been doing it for a long time. And Maybe some even have yet to enter into that relationship and are still investigating. Whatever the case might be, Lord Jesus, I pray that your word would speak, that they would understand, everybody would understand, wait a minute, God has this for me today. We need this from you today. This has to be a time we meet with you. We are not here just to pass time. We are here to hear from you. So we pray that you would speak, and we'll thank you for it in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. How to remember the important stuff. Well, one of the ways is, as we'll see in verses 16 to 18, and this is your first point in your notes, uh, have an unforgettable experience. Have an unforgettable experience. Well, you, if it's an unforgettable experience, you're always going to remember it, right? So you can ask yourself, have you ever had an unforgettable experience? Well, everybody's had some experiences you'll never forget, but but I'm not wanting to refer to just for example, that awesome vacation you went on or, or, or just some cool, fun time that, that we've all had opportunities to do. But I'm talking about those God moments. I'm talking about an unforgettable experience where the Lord did something in your life. The circumstances were such that there's no way you could have figured it out. There's no way you could have solved it. There's no way you could have made the things happen that happened. But man, God just did what God did and you will never ever forget that that happened in your life as a testimony people ever ever had that happen to you people all over the place you know why because God's alive God's working in your hearts in your lives God's doing that sort of thing right so this week I'm staying at my sister's house and she and her husband were out of town and then when they came back I was able to come home my brother-in-law was driving me to the airport to fly home on Wednesday and as he was driving me to the airport we were having some time to talk and now, my brother-in-law, if you knew him, he, although grew up in church, his parents took him to church when he was a young boy, uh, he never really gave his heart and his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He would not consider himself a born-again Christian. He's a nice man. He's, he's a good husband to my sister. He's a, he's a good guy. Uh, but he was raised in church, and so uh, he's willing to talk to me about things of the Lord or whatever. And he was t- recounting to me a story. And he was recounting to me a story when he was young. He was maybe 12 or 13, and and he was in a church that his parents took him to. He used to live in Montana at that time, and and he was in a Sunday school class. And in the Sunday school class, they had a little bit of time where they had some activities, and they stepped outside, and they were going to play a game or something like that. And when they were doing that, there was one guy in the class. I know this is shocking to you, but he was really misbehaving. The kid was just wild. He was doing some goofy things. And there was another kid in the class that said something, kind of loud, like, that guy doesn't belong in church because he was misbehaving. And the teacher of the Sunday school class said to the boy who made that comment, no, you don't understand. Church is for sinners, not for saints. Now, as profound as that may or may not have been, it made an impact on my brother-in-law, which then made an impact on me that at this point in his life, he's older than I am. He still remembers to this day. He will never forget that moment when the Sunday school teacher made that statement. Of course, I had to jump in and say, well, then church is where you ought to be. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, by the way, right, right? Amen. You got to take advantage of those things, man. But Peter had such an experience. In fact, Peter's experience described in verses 16, 17, and 18 is so great that if you spend any time in the Bible, you also will never forget Peter's experience, right? So look again in verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of, of the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and in so doing, he says, we, Peter says, we, Bible believers, followers of Christ, we have not followed fictional tales. We're going we're to declare unto you the truth. So let's go back and keep reading in verse 17. For he, Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, and here's the voice, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Now where this story is found in your Bible, I want you to keep a finger in Second Peter because we'll be coming back, but go to Matthew chapter 17. Because in Matthew chapter 17, it actually appears in, a, in two other gospel accounts as well. But we're going to read Matthew's account of it, starting in verse number 1 of chapter 17. Please follow along. This is the story that Peter was present for. This is the, the event that he's referring to in 2 Peter chapter 1. Matthew 17, 1. And after six days, Jesus take, taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? I mean Peter was capped and (laughs) obvious. If thou wilt let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses. And one for Elias, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So Peter is referring to this event. Now, this is an amazing, can you imagine, unforgettable event. I mean, have you ever thought when you read some of these stories, Man, if I had been there. I mean, how cool would that be? Could you imagine? Jesus Christ, who was, I think they had it figured out that he was the God-man by now, but he still was in normal human flesh, not the bright, shiny kind. And at this point, he's transfigured into his glory, his glorious body, and Moses and Elijah appear with him. How exactly they knew it was Moses and Elijah is another question. They didn't like have photos or anything, but they knew. And he was recognized by God the Father. This is my beloved son. Which means that Peter literally heard the audible voice of God speak from heaven. Now people today sometimes think they hear the audible voice of God, and probably it's just because they had too much pizza and beer the night before. I don't know. But as we'll see before we're done today, God has a very specific way of speaking to us today. But all you really need to understand about this event for now is that what happened in this event is this, is that Matthew 17 is the explanation of the couple of the verses before, the last two verses of Matthew 16, which is a foretaste of the second coming of Jesus Christ. I have in your notes verse 28, but I'm going to jump in with verse 27 where it says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. Verse 28, Verily I say unto you, there shall be some standing here. He's talking to His disciples which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So a a foretaste of the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ in glory, and then immediately it rolls into chapter 17 where Peter, James, and John got to be the some who got to be there and experience this sneak preview of what the second coming is going to kind of look like. So as a result, they understood the truth about his coming. Peter understood exactly how it's going to play out, not some fable. And as he's communicating it to them, he wanted them to understand that. What he wants all of us to know is this I have it in your notes. The only proper understanding of the second coming is, and it's kind of a big word, premillennial. Pre-millennial. Pre means before. The millennium is the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth after he returns. So the idea of a pre-millennial understanding of the second coming is just very simply this. It doesn't have to get that deep. Jesus Christ comes back first to a world that's broken. And he, by his presence, he makes it right. And then establishes a kingdom in which he reigns for 1,000 years. That is the very clear Bible teaching of the order of events of the end times. The church is here. The church will be raptured out. There will be a time of tribulation not to exceed seven years. Some think a little less, whatever, but about seven years. And then the physical, literal, bodily return of Jesus Christ comes. Okay, Armageddon. And then a 1,000-year reign of peace on earth with Jesus Christ ruling from the throne Of David in Jerusalem in the rebuilt temple. That is the Bible order of events. That is the truth of the second coming. That is what Peter's trying to communicate when he says, We've not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he refers to this event that appears. Now, when he was in this event, we had Moses and Elijah. We mentioned that. If you'll look in Revelation chapter 11, and we don't need to look at all the details of the verses, but Revelation 11, 3 through 6, gives a picture of what's yet to happen in the tribulation. This is the time of tribulation just prior to the second coming, the setting up of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he has two witnesses that will appear, and it says they're going to appear for thousand two hundred and score, or 60 days, and do the math with a 30-day month, that's exactly three and a half years. So the second half of the seven-year tribulation, we have these two witnesses. They're the two olive trees. You do some Bible study comparisons, and you're going to go to Zechariah chapter 14, and you're going to find out that these are two men that stand by the Lord. Go on to the next couple of verses. If anybody hurts them, they've got a pretty cool job description. You hurt me, man. Fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. I have often volunteered to the Lord to have this job, but he has not reserved it for me. If any man will hurt them, he must in this manner, with the coming out, be killed. Uh, By the way, Elijah, if you remember when we studied the life of Elijah, remember the guys came with the captain of 50 with their 50s. Hey, come down and see the king. No. And man, they they smoked him right there. This is Elijah. They have power to shut heaven that it rain not. Remember, that's Elijah. Remember he prayed it wouldn't rain, it wouldn't rain. He had to go by the brook. The ravens had to feed him. This This is the ministry of Elijah, right? that it rained not the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them to blood. Oh, wait a minute, Moses and the plagues, right? We got that, to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. These two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 are Moses and Elijah because they are the ones that attend to the Lord at the time of his second coming. Some people have thought erroneously that it would be Elijah and Enoch. Why? Because only Elijah and Enoch are the only people in the Old Testament who never died. And the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. And so everybody has to die at least once, so Elijah has to come back and die, and Enoch has to come back and die. But that would be an error in your Bible study because Enoch has to stand as one and only one man who never died and never will. Why? Because he's going to represent for you and for me all of us in the church who get raptured out and never die and never come back and never die, to die. So Enoch is a picture of the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. He is not a part of the two witnesses that come back in Revelation. Now, this is a little bit of Bible study. I told you we're gonna do a little bit of work. All this stuff is embedded in the text of 2 Peter chapter 1. It's fun, isn't it? Y'all having fun? Okay, there's some other things that you can know. You can know, this is in your notes, the season of his coming is the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Peter says to the Lord, hey, this is awesome. This is good that we're here. Glad I was, I'm glad I got the invite. Thanks. Then he says, can we build three tabernacles? You ever wonder why he said that? Well, because it was the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's in the seventh month on the Jewish calendar, which is the ninth month in our calendar. It would also have been, so, so, sorry, man, I, I'm, I'm in it now. I got to say it, don't I? It's also the time Jesus came the first time during the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, not in the winter, sorry. It's okay, we still we like Christmas. <laughs> Gee, when, when God is going to come to earth to tabernacle with man, he's going to come to earth at the Feast of Tabernacles. So the timing, the season of his coming will be in the fall. It will be late September. That will be the timing of this literal second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The specific time, as we get closer, this is the next thing in your notes, the time of his coming is also referred to. So in Matthew 17 and verse number 1, also in Mark chapter 9 and verse number 2, it gives you a clue where it says this event happened after six days. You see that? Okay, so in the chronology of Jesus walking with his Friends on earth, and okay, six days later, as the narrator is narrating, okay, that happened. But God has put that in there for a reason. Because then you go to Luke chapter 9, and Luke's version of this story tells the exact same story, but Luke records it this way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, about eight days. So, let's compare Scripture with Scripture. What is after six and about eight Seven. Congratulations. Even JR got it. Okay. (laughs) Just just kidding, man. I mean JR's on it. Because JR knows that in Second Peter chapter three and verse eight, beloved, know this a day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. And God is giving you the timing of his coming. And so you go back in the chronology and you do the genealogical study and you figure out how long before Jesus Christ did God actually put man on planet Earth. Adam and Eve showed up 4,000 years before Jesus Christ showed up or four days. Since Jesus Christ until now, it has been about 2,000 years or two days That means that prophetically, according to the authority of the Word of God, we are at the end of the sixth day in the history of man on earth. Amen? You tracking? We doing okay? This story says after six days, at the beginning of the seventh day, Jesus Christ is transfigured. Moses and Elijah show up. He shows up in his glory. And Peter says, don't get messed up because the understanding of the second coming has got to be premillennial. At the end of the church age, at the beginning of the setting up of that thousand year kingdom, on the seventh day, that's when it's going to happen. Because when God created all of the earth and everything on it, he created it in how many days? Six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. Because that seventh day, that's a picture, friends. A thousand years is a day. That seventh day is the millennial day. It is a day of rest. Why is it a day of rest? Because Satan is bound in a bottomless pit for 1,000 years, and Christ reigns on the throne for a whole day. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord. It's a 1,000-year day. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, I didn't remember the reference, but I'm going to give you the reference. It's Matthew 24, 36. Nobody knows the day or the hour. I can't believe the arrogance of this preacher. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be adult. We're going to be intelligent. And we're going to look at the words that God gave us. Did I say anything about the day? Did I say anything about the hour? Of course not. Is it possible for any of us to know the day or the hour on the authority of Matthew 24? No, of course not. But the times and the seasons, you better know you can know, right? You, you have to know that you can know the times and the seasons. So now we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and the first couple of verses. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, God makes very clear to us. Of the times and the seasons, brethren, writing to you in the church, right? You have no need for me to write unto you. Why? Because you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, there's your context, the day of the Lord, the 1,000-year millennial day of rest, it's going to come as a thief in the night. You already know very well the times and the seasons. And just to make it clear, in case it wasn't clear, Go to the very next verse, verse number three. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, how? As travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is likened unto a woman with child. Now, ladies, you know how it works. When you found out you were with child, you went to your doctor, and they would have given to you a due date. And they would, sa- they would have said, this child is due, for example, you know, I don't want to embarrass my child. I always do this. My, our two children were given the date. Thankfully, they missed the date. Halloween for the first one. April Fool's Day for the second one. <laughs> That's the truth. The two days the doctors picked for our two children... We're Halloween and April Fool's Day. Neither hit the day, thank the Lord, as though it matters really. But anyway, for the most part, okay, ladies, if the doctor gave you a due date and you gave birth naturally on the exact day the doctor had given you eight or nine months prior, please raise your hand, the exact day. There's one or two or three, four, four, five, five. That's pretty good. If we said, how about the rest of you, everybody else's hand goes up. Okay, here's the idea. Did you really know the exact day? Of course you didn't know the exact day and the hour, right? But you knew at eight and a half months, right? You knew the times and the seasons, right? The ladies knew that, hey, look, I might not know if it's tomorrow or a week from tomorrow or two weeks from tomorrow tomorrow. It ain't two months from tomorrow. (laughs) Amen? I mean, when you're getting out there, you know it's close. This is the picture God gives us. You can know the times and the seasons. You can know when the birth pains and travail start to come. You can know it's getting close. Do you know the exact day and the hour? No, but you can know that it's getting close. And that's what we're trying to understand. That's what he's trying to teach us. It's like a woman in travail with child. So go back to verse 16. A cunningly devised fable is any non biblical account of the second coming. And so the two most popular being ah millennialism. So we're going to change the prefix from pre to ah. The letter A, coming from the Latin root, okay, ah anything means without. So we say that something has morals. We say if something is amoral, that's not the same as immoral. Immoral is negative. Amoral is, doesn't have morals. Uh, money is amoral. You can use it for good, you can use it for evil. There's no moral code associated with a dollar bill, for example. It's, uh, it's without morals okay? Amusement. To muse, friends, kids, means to think, okay? To muse on things means to think. Amusement means unplug your brains. That's what it means. Without thinking. That's what it means. millennial is the teaching that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not literal. It's not actually going to happen. It's just spiritualized. Jesus Christ's second coming happened when he came into my heart when I received him by faith. That's the idea. Well, thank the Lord he came into my heart when I received him by faith. That is not the accurate teaching of the fact that Jesus Christ will return and establish a 1,000-year kingdom. That is a cunningly devised fable. The other one would be post-millennialism, and obviously now post means at the end. And there are people who propagate the teaching that this earth is, and this society that we live in, this earth, is just going to get better and better and better. And our job is to make the perfect utopian society ourselves. And once we achieve this per- perfect kingdom ourselves, at the end of that time, Jesus will return and say, well, thanks. <laughs> 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 and those people who believe that, I think, need to have prescription medication. I don't understand how in the world... You can watch the news, see what's going on in the world, and come to that conclusion. How? There's no way. Those are actually cunningly devised. And he says, look, what does he say in verse 16? We have not followed them, which presupposes some do. But we Bible believers don't, amen? We're not following that stuff. That's not right. They're cunningly devised. That phrase cunningly devised is only one other time translated in your Bible. It's in 2 Timothy 3.15 and is translated to make thee wise. So as to make people think that they're wiser than others. Maybe wiser than the biblical record. I mean who would do such a thing? Hmm. I wonder who. Well we have an enemy you know. Peter had an unforgettable experience. He had a glimpse of second coming, power and glory and honor. All three of those words are in Second Peter. And there's a whole list of references from Revelation, chapter four, chapter five, chapter seven, chapter 19, where you get a glimpse of Jesus Christ in glory, and in each one of those references, and just start scrolling through those references, chapter four and chapter five. And what you see is honor and power and glory unto the Lamb who sits on the throne forever and ever. Amen because that's what you get when you get a glimpse and Peter had the glimpse of the glory and the honor and the power wouldn't that have been awesome to experience that firsthand but only three guys got to only three guys got to so you say and i would say i've never had that kind of an experience no problem it's okay Because there is another way to remember that's even better than an unforgettable experience. And that's your second point. And I'm calling it an unimpeachable record. An unimpeachable record. It says in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. So he explains his unforgettable experience. And then he says, we have also. So that means there is another way. There's another way for you to remember forever without necessarily having to have such a glorious experience. We have a more sure word of prophecy. More sure than what? More sure than an unforgettable experience. More sure than the very audible voice of God. You believe that? That's what he says. More sure than if you actually, forget the pizza and beer thing, more sure than if you actually heard God speak from heaven. More sure. Think about that. And he calls it the word of prophecy. Word of prophecy. Well, prophecy deals with future things. And do you know that in your Bible, There is no event that even comes close to the amount of prophecy that is invested in this event, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are over 500 specific prophecies that talk about this event, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a more sure word of prophecy And in case that's not clear in case it's not clear exactly what he's talking about he defines it going into the very next verse. He defines the word of prophecy as the prophecy of the scripture. For no prophecy of the scripture and scripture is written because it's script. That's what we do. When we script it we write it. So here's what you need to learn. A written record is better than any personal God moment. Now, earlier we said, "Hey, who had a God moment? Who, who had?" And all over the house, everybody raise your hand. Man, God has shown me stuff. God did things. God's done stuff, and that's awesome. I we're not denying the validity of those. What we are doing is biblically looking at what God says about it, and He's saying, "What you have written in the Word of God is more." reliable it's more sure than anything you could have ever possibly experienced even to the level of what peter experienced which was one of only three men on the planet a written record is better so you've never had the great experience it's okay you have something better why is it better how is it better well first off it's objective it's not subjective my experiences are subjective And let me tell you, it's dependent upon your memory. Um, My mom has had some amazing experiences in her life. She's had a wonderful life. She can't remember them all. And if she can, she doesn't remember them exactly the way they happened anymore. But if you have it written down, you don't have to remember. You're not subject to the possibility of somebody hearing something you didn't say and telling it a different way No, you have an objective standard because it is written. I don't remember exactly what that was. Well, let's just look it up. It's ink on paper. It's the same when you look it up tomorrow. It's objective. That's why it's better. It's also better because it's prophetic. And like I referred to earlier, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that have already been fulfilled to the letter. And we've done this before, and I'm not going to take the time, but if you were to do the mathematical statistical probability of all those things happening just by chance without God orchestrating the prophecy. It says in the book of Revelation, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The the chance of all of those things happening by chance are mathematically equal to exactly zero because God's behind it. So the written record is better because it's objective. It's better because it's prophetic. And it's better because it's alive. It's not just ink on paper. It is a living book, Hebrews 4.12. It's quick. That means alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It has, this book has the ability to discern between your thoughts and your intents. Think about that for a minute. When you stand, if, if a person is accused of some crime and they stand in a court of law and they are being put on trial, oftentimes what they're trying to de- determine is not just what the person did because a lot of times the facts, you know, the forensic guys, and they'll figure out the facts of what happened. What they need to find out is what did you intend on happening? Can they figure that out? Well, I don't know if we're always capable of figuring out what you intend. But this book is. This book can read your mind. This book knows the insides and outs. Why? Because it's God's book. Because it's a spiritual book. Because it's alive. This is not just, you know, a processed tree. There's much more to it than that. There's something to this thing. This thing is special. It's God's book, and it's for you. So as such, because that's true, human interpretation is not allowed, and that's verse 20. No prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. How many times you talk to somebody about some idea biblically, and they come back with, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, I hope not, because that's not allowed. God will have nothing to do with it. He doesn't give you the freedom to just have your own interpretation. Oh, you can, but you'll be judged. I mean, it's, it'll be wrong, right? God himself is the one who will give the interpretation. Genesis chapter 40 and verse number 8 is the story of Joseph when he's coming out of prison, right, and he's going to um, interpret the dream of Pharaoh. And when he's coming out and he's going to do that, Pharaoh says, hey, I hear you can do this. And Joseph says, wait a minute wait a minute, let's get one thing straight. I don't do anything. And he says, don't you understand? Interpretations belong to God. Don't you understand that? And the same exact experience happened with Daniel, because Daniel was the other guy who was reading the dreams, right? And so they call Daniel in, right? And they want to get the same thing. And in Daniel 2.28, he tells them, he says, look, don't you know that God is the one who reveals the secrets? And I didn't put verses 29 and 30. I should have thrown them up there also. But it goes on to say the exact same thing. Interpretations come from God. They don't come from us. They don't come from a church body. They don't come from an organization or a hierarchy of church bodies. They don't come, that's what cults do, by the way. You gotta watch out for that. Interpretation of the scripture must come directly from the author of the scripture, right? Right? God himself gives the proper interpretation because God is the one who communicated it. And what he has chosen to do is not necessarily speak audibly to anybody anymore because we have something better. So now God has chosen to speak to us through his written word, the prophecy of the scripture, and by rightly dividing it and studying it the way we need to. And that is our job, 2 Timothy 2.15. Our job is to study. So what, can, what have you who come to First Baptist Church regularly learned to expect when you come here? You have learned to expect we're going to study. Amen? And if you kind of don't get into studying, you know, you probably won't hang around here very long. But this is our job. We are required to do this. We are not allowed to have our own private interpretations. We must get God's interpretations. But hey, the book is alive and it will interpret itself, but we have to do our work. So we have to interpret it in context and according to the rules. There are some rules. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse number 5. If any man also strive for the masteries, I would say understanding God's will through his word is a mastery, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. <laughs> there's, some, there's some rules, man. You've got to play by the rules or you won't get the crown. So how exactly are you going to do that? Well, I just threw this out here so you could have it in your notes. Uh, How about get the right tools? Get the right tools. Uh, Come to classes. We offer classes to teach you how to do that. How to Study the Bible is a 12-week-long class in our ministry tools and training so finish personal discipleship sign up for ministry tools and training and go through the process to get the class on how to study the bible and understand it properly within its context get yourself a good concordance nowadays it's all on computer programs get yourself a bible search computer program they're free you can do it online Uh, get a good bible dictionary get some tools and learn how to use them so that god's word can define itself The next thing, compare Scripture with Scripture because this is the way you understand it. You take the words God uses over here and you compare them with the same words that He uses over here and you allow the context to dictate how God's Word interprets God's Word and you don't have to yank things out of their context to come up with your own private interpretation. The next thing, be diligent. We started in 2 Peter talking about how we need to be diligent about these things. Well, back in 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, right, that we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman, because diligence is hard work, right? So we need to be diligent. We need to be workmen that need not be ashamed. And lastly, be patient. And you know what? This is probably the one that where a lot of you are going to land, because I think a lot of you here already know, get the tools, compare Scripture with Scripture, need to put the work in, whether you've been doing it or not, you know, you know that's what you're supposed to do. But what frustrates you is be patient. And go to the next verse. It's John 16, 12. And Jesus says this to his disciples. I love this. You've got to get this in John 16. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you can't bear them now. In other words, Jesus said this. Listen, i got a lot of cool stuff I want to share with you. And once you're ready for it, I'll share it with you. And until you're ready for it, I won't. You ever wonder why some people just seem to get stuff and other people just don't? Well, probably because their life is so invested in ministry and learning and growing, they need to learn more new things to be better equipped to continue to reach and to lead and to disciple and to train and to do the work of the Lord. So God will continue to give that to them, but only when they need it, only when they are ready. And if you have been dormant and not serving and just sitting, you know, around on your blessed assurance and, you know, waiting for the magic fairy dust to sprinkle down on you, then, you know, maybe you're not ready and God's not giving it to you. I don't know. I'm just telling you how it works. You want to let God interpret His word, then get the tools, compare Scripture, be diligent, and be patient. That's just how it works. By the way, when that happens, somebody's got to shout amen for me on this one, okay? Maksood, you ready? I got to get some help when that happens and God opens up his word and and, I mean that thing jumps off the page into your heart and you see it yourself for the first time that is the God moment you're looking for amen that's it man listen there's two experiences in your life that you can never compare with anything else one is having the privilege to lead somebody to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ what a blessing The other one is God speaking directly to you as you study. It leaps off the page and into your life. You'll never experience anything like it. It's the greatest thing in the world. That's the kind of life we should be living, right? Well, it's not of any private interpretation. We're not allowed to do that. Why? Because the Bible is not a humanly authored book. Yeah, yeah, I get it. He used men to pen what He wanted. But they're not man's words. They are God's words. The men are just scribes. So, we're going to end with this. How did we get the Bible? How did we get the Bible? Second Timothy 3.16, a lot of you already know, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay, well, Did it just float down from heaven on golden leaves, you know? No, of course not. Verse 21, 2 Peter. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So in the Old Testament, in old time, right, the prophets didn't come up with this stuff on their own. Right? Amen? I mean, think about it. Moses was told, hey, go... Go say what I tell you to say. Moses is like, no, I ain't doing it. Uh, Jonah, remember Jonah? Hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh and say what I tell you to say. I oh, no, know, I ain't doing it. These guys didn't even want to do it. Amos, one of my favorites. I love Amos. Chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. He's like, man, this is not like my occupation. I was just a dude, man. I was like a fruit picker. (laughs) Which is just a little better than a nose picker. Okay, so, and the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, go prophesy unto my people. He's like, this wasn't me. God just did it. Jeremiah, then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary with forbearing. I could not stay. These are God's words. But I want you to notice because we are going to be diligent students of the word today. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Does not say holy men of God Wrote. Do you see that? God inspired men to speak. Oh, sure, somebody wrote it down, thank God. But we're getting somewhere with this, okay? So we're going to get just a, a little bit technical. Some of you are ready for this. This is the definition of inspiration. Literally, the word inspiration means God breathed. So according to the Bible, which is supposed to be our final authority, right? Inspiration occurs when God breathes into a man and that man speaks. It is verbal. It is spoken. And then somebody else records it. Notice the pattern. Jeremiah chapter 36, verse number 1. It says the word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord. So it's not Jeremiah's words. They're the words of the Lord. And we jump down to verse number four. Then Jeremiah called Barak the son of Neriah, and Barak wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. So whose words are they? The Lord's words. Who spoke them? Jeremiah spoke them. Who wrote them? Barak wrote them. You see how it works? So here's what you need to understand. And and again, this is technical, but I'm going to prove to you why this is technically important and accurate. No Bible, listen to me, man. Listen to the end. Critics will be listening, and they're going to try and take this and run with it. Hear the truth. No Bible is inspired. How you doing? Y'all doing okay? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, doesn't say is inspired, is given by inspiration. There's a difference. There's a difference. Because there are modern translations of the Bible that will say all scripture is inspired. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Scripture is the written part. Inspire is the breathing spoken part. You see that? Now, this is technical. I get it. But it matters. It matters, okay? Because it doesn't matter. A lot of you go to statements of faith of churches. We believe the Bible's inspired in the originals. No, no, no. You're talking about written documents again now. Now, that is not actually completely accurate. And I know, I know there's some of you saying, look, man, really, who cares? I mean, do I got the goods or don't I? Let, oh, you know, for, you, for all you, you got the goods! Right? <laughs> Okay, praise the Lord, but the process God used to get it to us is important, so I put it all in your notes, and it may interest some of you more than others. But for those of you that are Bible students out there, this is really good. This is how the Bible comes from God to what we have. This is exactly how it works. There is revelation, that is God speaking. Then there is inspiration, a chosen human is is entrusted with these words, who then speaks them. Then there is what we will call inscripturation, right? The words are perfectly written down. Then there is the transmission of these written down words. They're perfectly copied and distributed, transmitted to others. Then there is the collation or the canonization. The documents are officially compiled and organized. Then there are translations as the compilation is then translated into various languages all under the umbrella of preservation, that God has promised in Psalms 12, 6, and 7 and other places that he would perfectly preserve his words from this generation forever. And the way that God preserves his words is through this God-prescribed process. <sighs> All right, let's bring it home. You can always remember the important stuff. Because God's given us an unimpeachable record, a written record, perfectly preserved for us in English. That is how Peter was able to succeed in his desire of verse 15. But, as we wrap it up, please understand, all of that cool stuff, pretty cool stuff, right? means practically nothing if we don't do what it says to do in verse 19. And that's what you have in your notes. It says ye do well to take heed, church. Take heed. See, the scriptures are written for your good. But they only do you good if you heed what they say. To heed is to listen and to obey. It's to apply it to your life. It goes on and it says, as a light that shines in a dark place. Well, it is, therefore, the word of God is the lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It is literally your spiritual GPS to get you through a very dark world. Galatians 1 calls it this present evil world. And this book is your light. It is your compass. And it's going to show you where you should go. Oh, it will show you where you should avoid going. Until the day dawn. Well, we already learned what the day is. It's the day of the Lord. It's the millennial day, right? It's going to begin with the return of the son of righteousness. Malachi chapter 4. It's the dawn of a new day. As the day begins, it begins with the dawn until the day dawn as the sun begins to rise in the east. And then just before that, here's what will happen. The day star will arise in your hearts. You know, according to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, that bright and morning star, the day star, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ in your hearts by faith? If you have, that's where he's at. And you're a part of the church, which is his body. And before the day dawn, and he judges unbelievers and sets up his kingdom, before that happens, the day star will arise in your hearts. That's the rapture of the church. Because you will rise up out of here before that happens now don't get confused because if you were to go to isaiah chapter 14 and verse number 12 where it talks about lucifer the king james bible calls him accurately the son of the morning but if you were to look in other translations of the bible in english that were not perfectly preserved it confuses lucifer with the Lord Jesus Christ by calling him the day star. (gasps) You should gasp. The ESV calls him the day star. The New American Standard Bible calls him the star of the morning. The NIV calls him the morning star, confusing Lucifer with Jesus Christ. You shouldn't be believing those accounts. He shouldn't be arising in your hearts, right? So Peter says, man, you need to remember these things. You need to remember the path of growth. You need to understand and remember what you need to do to make sure you stay on the path and continue to grow and keep heeding the word of God until you're raptured out. That's what he wants us always to remember. So we're going to wrap it up, and I've just got a couple of questions for you. Does Jesus Christ... The day star, the true day star, live in your hearts today. Because if he doesn't, he can. All you have to do is cry out to him and ask him to save you. But most